Hello, and welcome to our fourth session of Coffee with Kathy or Coffee with Pastor Kathy. And today I'm drinking out of this beautiful cup that is not only beautiful on the outside, but the words on the inside say, friends, fill your life with joy. Friends, fill your life with joy. And I'm just drinking water. And I'm happy to be here today with one of my friends. Martina Edmonds, who is a member of our church since 2017. Uh, she's, she's just been such a gift and presence to me personally. And our, our relationship is something that I really treasure. And um, she's also work, serves on our day school committee and has served very effectively there. I think this is your second or third term. No, second. second I think. Yes. Yeah, second time. So welcome, Martina. Thank you for Thank being you. here today. And we're going to be talking about, uh, from a medical perspective, from a healthcare perspective, um, the COVID-19. And so yeah. I thought it would be great to have someone that we know and someone that we can relate to who's actually on the ground in the field every day. So it's just a joy. And I appreciate so much you taking the time it's such a busy time. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your medical background and some things that the other people don't know. Okay. Well, thank you again for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be a part of your podcast series, your premiere year. Um, and uh, I am drinking from a cup. It's my New York Manhattan cup that one of my patients gave me when I completed my year of uh, primary care. So yes, I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant. Uh, and for those of your audience that may not be familiar with it, a physician assistant, we are sort of these healthcare practitioners or mid-level practitioners that um, get our didactic training the same way your medical doctor does. We go through the same clinical practice and clinical rotations that your physicians do. And we're in all forms of medicine at this point, whether it be surgery or ophthalmology, the emergency room, or your primary care provider. Uh, and so I've been doing that for about 18 years, and I specialize in emergency medicine. In the past year, I actually retired uh, and wanted to sort of pursue a consultancy, uh, looking into healthcare systems and some of the uh, inequalities that we're discussing at this particular time. And of course, when COVID-19 came back, I decided to join the forces again. Uh, but in my off-season of not practicing clinically, I do a lot of consulting with the UN and the health, health system development globally and obviously in local communities within the U.S. So that's a little bit of me. Currently, I'm at Wild Cornell, uh, and uh, that's downtown, or as old New York would know, where I'm at New York Hospital. Uh, that's 68th in New York. That's great. And of course, one of the things that I want to know, as you know, from time to time, I'll text you and just, I'm just like, how are you doing? How's it going? So uh, as a pastor and as your friend, I, I wanna, want you to tell us how you're doing, how you're coping these days, how you're holding up. So, you know, I like to say that I'm doing okay. Uh, and I think I'm doing just as good as everyone else is. And, and luckily, I have colleagues and people around me who are you know, up against the same circumstances. Obviously, things are challenging and they're hard, um, you know, based upon just the current circumstances. But I, I would say, yeah, I'm doing well, as well as can be uh, managing these, these difficult times. So. 
Well, I know how much you care for people, and we've had a lot of conversations about that, usually over pancakes and bacon, but nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) And to to the extent that you can share um, how, who are the people that you're seeing? Who, who are the people that you're caring for in general? Yeah, so, you know, interestingly, the census of the ER is down. You know, we're not seeing our acute, you know, sort of lower back pains or things of that nature on a, a daily basis. We're seeing a lot of COVID, obviously. And for the most part, the ER has been transformed into what looks like an ICU. Um, and, and that's a little challenging, a little difficult, because it isn't actually what I'm familiar with in the ER. Uh, but we are seeing young people. We're seeing, you know, people as young as 20, 21. We are seeing people as old as 90 uh, and older. Um, but mostly at this particular stage, I think if you would have asked me in the beginning, in early March, what we were seeing, we were seeing pretty much everything in every age. And people were either really sick or they had symptoms. Now we're seeing a lot of people who are uh, relatively sick, and that's really what's in the ER. That the people that are there are in these middle stages, you know, where you know you're not really sure what's going to happen. You know, this is a virus that is, as I, we were sharing before, it's it's a brilliant virus in the way that it uh, is able to incubate itself within our, our, our bodies for a long period of time. And generally, people are showing up when they are highly symptomatic, or if you have other comorbidities like diabetes or hypertension, uh, we're seeing them in a really bad situation. So I would say at this particular stage, the people that we are seeing, they're sick, um, and they're alone, and they're scared. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's fatigue, and, and that's, there's the familiarity of that, that, that fatigue, and that aloneness, and that fear. And so, um, you know, it's a challenging time because again, they're all ages, but I think the, um, there's a interesting camaraderie that actually goes on in the ER between the patients, between the colleagues, uh, my colleagues and I, that um, we recognize that this is the situation that we're in. And so some of us are able to bring light and some of us are able to bring comfort because again, families aren't in the ER. Um, and you've actually seen people who generally would probably never speak to each other um, communicate with each other. So as I would always tell people in the past when they would ask me, what's the ER like? I would say the ER is the level playing field. When you come to the ER, everyone's equal. Um, and this has remained the same. Uh, but and yet it's also become this interesting place where all of us recognize that we're in this together. You know, whether it be the patients, our colleagues, whether it's the maintenance person, uh, respiratory tech, whoever it is, whether I have surgery teams with me in the ER, it doesn't matter. We're all in this together and really kind of fighting for one particular cause, which is each other. I know, uh, I think the reports this morning were that the numbers in New York are going down, but still it was over 600 people, I think, died yesterday on Easter Sunday, which is it's astronomical in my opinion. Right. Um, but what are some of the best practice if, practices if you think you're uh, symptomatic? Like I know myself and lots of friends that I've spoken with are like, how many times have we Googled, right? right. Symptoms right. and what does this mean? Right. Um, what are some of the best practices if you think that you might be symptomatic and you're home alone? 
Right. right. So Googling is helpful. Feedback. Um, Googling is helpful uh, because the CDC website does have a really good list of symptoms, right? And so, you know, things like fevers, chills, shortness of breath, body aches, these are actually really good symptoms. But we also have to keep in mind that it's allergy season and it's, yeah. we're on the tail end of cold and flu season. So if you haven't left your house in three weeks, it's hard to get COVID. Um, however, if you have and there's, you know, you've been out there and you haven't worn your mask and you haven't had your uh, gloves on, then there is a possibility. So things that you really should be looking for are um, that fever that comes on. So a lot of people that have come into the ER, even friends of mine that have come up positive, it tends to be something very subtle that shows up first. It could be something as a sudden onburst of, of diarrhea or maybe a slight sore throat that may last a few hours and go away. Um, and then the next day, this fever. And when we classify fever in the ER, we mean temperatures. Uh, and so that's 100.1 or higher is what is medically classified as a fever. Uh, and so generally those fevers do come on. You're feeling fatigued. You might have some shortness of breath. The cough is a known part of this particular um, uh, virus. And from that point on, if you are feeling those things, it's helpful to reach out to your primary care doctor, to maybe even call over to the urgent care center in New York City, or depending on where you live, there are numbers that you can reach out. I wouldn't say rush into the ER immediately, um, but I would say give a call over. And even some of the hospitals, even at Cornell, we have numbers that you can call to get an assessment, to just telehealth the way we are right now to get an assessment of your uh, situation. However, if you notice that if you're short of breath outside of the norm, right? So if you happen to have a walk up and you've got to walk up those 30 stairs and all of a sudden it becomes the biggest chore of your life, that is something I want to see you for. I don't want you to call me. I want to see you. We want to know what is it like um, we want to know what your oxygen saturation is like. We want to know how difficult it is. Uh, that's not to say that if you aren't having, if you are having other things, like if you're having chest pain, I want to see you too. Just because my ER is full of COVID doesn't mean we're not doing the other important um, things. So, you know, the first thing when you do come on with those symptoms is, you know, take up a, a breather. Remember that allergies are here. Um, you know, begin to, if you're for the family member, begin to isolate yourself a little bit. Maybe you want to put on a mask a little bit, uh, get a hold of that doctor and find out what it is that's going on, perhaps, to get an idea of what's going on. If you um, live alone, then obviously you may want to call somebody. Because again, we don't want you managing this, this virus by, at home by yourself either. It's not something that we prefer or want you to do at all. So no matter how you see it, it is good to, um, to reach out. Not everyone uh, who has symptoms will get a test. That's, unfortunately, we haven't had the capacity or in, at this point the ability to test everyone, uh, but it is important that you reach out and find out what's going on. Well, as someone who's spent some time personally in the ER and having yeah. sat with other people in the ER, right. You know, what's the likelihood, let's say somebody shows up at six o'clock this afternoon, this evening, and they think right. they're, you know, they've got a fever, or maybe they weren't even able to get a thermometer, but they just feel hot right. or, or tired yeah. or whatever. Yeah. From the moment they enter that door, on average, mm -hmm. you know, what's that process like? How quickly will somebody come to see them? You know, I mean, I know stories of people who sit for hours in the emergency right. room. 
So it's a little different than our prior because at this point in time, if you have mild symptoms, you're not getting into my ER. And that's because most of what's in my ER is sick. So we don't want to expose you to a place where this highly contagious virus is. We do have walk-in centers. We may refer you to another place. We do have a tent, and this is where a lot of people are actually being sent to, a tent or a facility outside of the hospital so that you're not actually coming in. But essentially, you're coming in, you're telling us what your symptoms are. Uh, the nurse will triage you. There is the bilateral nose test that you should be getting. It should be both nostrils. It's slightly uncomfortable. Um, and from there, we're deciding, we're looking at your oxygenation. We're looking at you walk and ambulate and see, you know, what, is your, what are your other comorbidities? So if you're someone who's 65 and older, you're likely to come into the hospital so that we can at least monitor you for six hours. Uh, if you have history of hypertension or diabetes, even if these are under control, these, this particular disease tends to affect those particular um, people with those, uh, those illnesses um, a little bit more intensely than perhaps someone who doesn't have or a little bit younger. Um, but essentially, the people that are coming in to stay, those people are, really have low oxygen saturation. They can't get through an entire conversation or a full sentence. So they may talk more like this, and they haven't moved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those people, we have to see them because those people are actually in a really acute situation where we're not really sure what's going to happen. But for the majority of people that would have come before mm-hmm. and some that are still coming in right now, what you're doing is we're actually, uh, we, we are fully gowned, obviously, but uh, it looks like you're walking into a station <laughs> being tested by aliens of sorts yeah. uh, with the two swabs and we're asking you to do all the things that your public officials are telling you to do, which is wear the mask, you know, wear the gowns. And this is not just for our protection, but it's also for yours. Remember, we are constantly being exposed to this virus. So we are likely to, you know, transmit in some form to you. And the idea is the more you can protect yourself, the better. Obviously, the more you protect yourself, you're also protecting me. So it's not a fun process, but as, as it never is. Uh, unfortunately, it's also a very lonely process, right? Because like you mentioned, you would go to the ER with someone and you're able to sit in the ER and that's a part of the old process. That unfortunately isn't happening at yeah. this point. We can't have the extra. And so that's what also makes these public health announcements and all the things that you've been hearing over the last couple of weeks hugely important because what I am seeing in the ER are, and this is not fully the case, but what I am seeing are people that perhaps didn't think it was as serious or maybe they couldn't get it because they were immune somehow, right? Um, and so maybe they were out a little bit too long prior. Maybe they were at the parks playing a game or whatnot. Um, and unfortunately, this virus was able to ravage them. I would love to share with you uh, a direct patient story uh, but I have to be mindful there are HIPAA laws, and so I have to be mindful of being protective of that. But we have had individuals who, you know, were not so adherent to the to the rules and the guidelines that were being out there. And I've had to sit with many um, families, or I should say people, um, and maybe give them the advanced directives, you know, and talking to someone who is 20-something years old and, and and telling them that this isn't going well uh, and 
they knowing and I knowing that perhaps their actions, had they just been a little bit different, could have been the difference in this in their outcome of having to sit with people and hold their hand because there isn't anyone else to hold their hand while they're speaking to their family members and we relaying some unfortunate news about their outcome. It's a challenging um, time. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say, um, you know, if, if there was any advice that I could give, I would say, you know, just do what you're being asked to do. It's not too much. It's not too much at all because the things that we have had to encounter as practitioners, you, you see it on the news. None of this is nonsense. None of this is fake. This is real life. And when you're, um, you know, someone in my position, when you have to be the other person, you know, that's holding the hand of a complete stranger and, you know, having to talk to a parent or a husband or a wife or another family member uh, or if they don't have a family member, to just sit with them through that. It's a very lonesome uh, illness, and it's, it's quite scary, and it's quite hard. And it's, it's those moments where you realize, like, you just wish people would stay home. I think if you ask any one of my colleagues, they would just say, stay home. Just stay home. And, again, it's not for us. It's really for you because this isn't. This is the worst way to die, and it's the worst time to die as well. I know that most of the people I know directly seem to be adhering to this. And even yeah. I go across the street to the grocery store, you know, people are masked and gloved. But yeah. I, I'll be honest, I have family and friends all over the country, yeah. and they don't seem to be, you know, I keep hearing reports of people that are still doing all kinds of things. and. Right. It scares me a bit. It really yeah. does. Yeah. It scares me too. <laughs> it scares me as well. It's, it's, you know, because it's New York, but other places, other places are okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it is very scary. I mean, we have a very efficient and um, well-run healthcare system in here in New York, and that's that's the thing, right? But if you are in some of these other states where you don't have uh, an efficient healthcare system, or maybe the hospital is twenty miles away. And so, therefore, maybe you're not seeing people, you know, the way we are here in New York in our densely populated areas. It doesn't mean that you are immune to this virus or that it cannot reach you. If there's anything that this virus has taught us is that none of us are immune to this, is that what happens in Wuhan, China, happens in New York City, happens in North Carolina. You know, and we also have to keep in mind is even though it's not happening in your neighborhood, we are on the, on the precipice of two million people globally. Uh, that have contracted this disease and, you know, this, and we're not done, you know, maybe we, some of us are peaking in different areas, but, you know, we also have to be mindful that it's a small world and, and you should be masked up in the very least. And also mindful that, you know, when you are stressing your healthcare systems, it, even when they're not as efficient as New York, it could be you one day that has to be confronted with some of the, the decisions that um, that we're having to make, and, and, and these are real decisions. We're putting two people on one vent. That's not normal. That's not sufficient by any means. Um, you know, making decisions about um, terminals. You know, who who gets the vent? You know, whose life is deemed to have more time over someone else's. 
um, these aren't decisions that uh, are typical for us in the ER. We are lifesavers. That's that's part of what my job is. And so we're having to make decisions based upon a lack of resources is challenging because the person I'm looking in front of, I don't know. I don't know how long they have to live, what they have to give, what else they have to give. And, you know, those, those again, those are, that's when you sort of say to people, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether you live in Washington State, California, Miami, this isn't something that isn't affecting you in some way. It, it has, you have to be cognizant that we are very much connected to each other. And so if we're doing it here in New York, you should be doing it in North Carolina and Georgia because it will be you too someday. And we will run to you too someday. But um, it, it's, we, we really need to be taking this a little bit more serious, even as the numbers begin to level off and, and hopefully begin to decrease. We still need to be adherent to what we are being uh, informed about the, the public guidelines. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the loneliness because, you know, when we, when we know we're going to die, often people will have their spouse or partner or parent or child. And for those people to also know what is going on and not be able to, to go to that person or hold that person, I mean, that's, that's a different level of pain. It's yeah. a different level of pain on all angles, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had to inform a mother of a 20-something-year-old who's in another state. Um, and to, to kind of give you a sense of that, generally, you know, in an ER setting, most of us would leave the room to allow family and friends to have their moments. And it's also a, a time in which we're able to breathe, you know, to kind of not have to mind that middle space and to maybe go look at another chart or to focus on the next patient because there's always another patient, right? This is more or less having to live in that space with them. And no matter who you are, it doesn't matter what my job is, I'm human. And to tell another, to tell another woman, a mother, about her child and to watch them go through that process um, up close it's hard to watch someone cry. There's, this, there's the law of thermodynamics, right, that says that energy is neither created nor destroyed. It is merely transferred. That's a lot. That's the hardest part of the job is to constantly be referred that energy because you and I were talking before when I said mostly what I do when I walk in, you know, to the hospital every day is, you know, I have the some run through my head, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Because never in my life, in my career at least, have I thought that. And it'd be so poignant and so real that I am walking through a valley of the shadow of death. You don't, these days we walk through the, um, I, you know, and this is a lot of us, we walk into the hospital knowing that you know, you're lucky if you get out with a minimum amount of codes, but you're going to sit for one or two or three and sometimes more. And so um, it is a very lonely thing. It's also because of the nature of the virus. So I, like, again, I cannot emphasize more being adherent because this is, it's, it's not, it's not right. It's unfair. One of the questions that we had 
come in was about, we talked about the practices for people who think they're symptomatic, but another question was, if there are other people in the household, how might they be caring for themselves or the infected person? If somebody's actually quarantined. Yeah, so if you have tested positive and your spouse or whomever is in the house with you, the, most, the best thing you can do, one, is just always wear a mask. You know, have that person as best as possible. Some of our New York apartments are small, but to quarantine as, as best as possible. Try not to be in physical contact with each other. We do know that this virus lives on surfaces for up to three hours and possibly longer. We know that there's a lingering of this virus even within the spaces of a room for hours as opposed to minutes. Um, so you want to minimize your um, your contact. I hate the word isolation and distancing. It just seems so, it's actually counter to what we do as human beings. It's actually, we are hardwired for connection, right? So, but I would say in those settings, you do want to, as best as possible, separate. If you're feeding, if you're doing direct care, you want to make sure that you're wearing gloves to take care of the, the, uh, the food trays that you're serving. Uh, that you that you are using hot water to wash stuff, that you are washing their clothes in hot water. And heat tends to be uh, something that desensitizes this disease. You want to maybe use some sprays, or if you don't have the, the cleaning agents, things like baking soda and vinegar and, you know, these parts of hydrogen peroxide together are also good cleaning agents. And so you want to wipe down the, um, the uh, door handles and areas where that person may touch. When they go to the bathroom, if you have two bathrooms in your home, let one bathroom be theirs. Um, and obviously if you have one, then you wanna be very mindful to wipe after them, to go back behind them. This disease is easily transmitted in a home where one person is infected. That does not mean that the person who's infected is isolated to one room. You know, if you have a small apartment, that may be the case. But I would still encourage that if you have minimal symptoms, and that is the case, if you're home and you're isolating, you likely do have mild to moderate symptoms that don't require hospitalization, then, you know, if it's just a fever and, you know, recognize that getting some sunlight and going out for a walk during the day is helpful. It's also mentally helpful so that you're not constantly under this idea that things are going to be bad. I can't tell you how many stories, Kathy, where, you know, you don't know why people get better. Sometimes it's mentality. Sometimes it's prayer. You know, I understand all of that, but it is important uh, that you all do keep your, your mind about you. So I would say if you're caring for someone, remember you are doing the hardest, most difficult, uh, and, and thank you work, uh, but to also be mindful of yourself and protecting yourself and wiping those areas down behind them, you know, and giving them space and listening. I think I, I actually asked a friend of mine who was a colleague, who tested positive, and I said, what was the best thing about having your husband home with you? And she says, just that he was there. That, you know, he would spend time just talking to her from afar, you know, keeping that six feet distance in the room, but that he was there. You know, he did all the normal things, like, you know, making the teas and stuff of that nature, but that he was just there. And I think that's hugely important because especially when you are contracted or you have this disease, we know that isolation is the cure. So in a sense, being present and, 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 and connecting with other people is actually really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know every evening at seven in the city, there is, you know, uh, 
sounds and clapping and horns honk, honking and everything. And people are trying to express to healthcare professionals their gratitude and appreciation for what you all are doing on the front lines. And just in general, though, even when I'm at the grocery store, you know, I hear people, uh, customers thanking the people who are working at the register in a way that I never have before. Um, what else can we do? What, what can we as a church, um, how can we pray for you? What should our prayer be? I, you know, I can get this a lot and, and maybe I'm not someone who constantly thinks about what someone else could do for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, the first thing I always think of is pray for my patients, uh, pray for my family, the families of my patients, you know, pray for my family yeah. um, and, and for my friends, because I think, you know, we, you and I have had a conversation about how do I take care of myself. And when I really kind of thought about it, I don't necessarily spend a lot of time doing the things that I probably should be doing or advise so much as I rely on the people around me to, to support me in that fashion. So I would say for me personally, and probably for my colleagues, pray for the people that are supporting us. You know, obviously do the things that we're asking of you. It's not so much that um, you, uh, that you, that you're protecting yourself from getting the disease. But the idea is to never have you sit in front of me. The goal of the ER is that we never meet. And so do the, do the thing that you're supposed to be doing. That would probably be the best thing you could do for me. Stay home. Uh, and like I said, for my, for my patients uh, and for those who are sick and for my colleagues, you know, pray for us. And, and not just during this time, but for the times to come. Because the truth is, and you and I, Kathy, have spoken about this, is it's not so much today or tomorrow or yesterday that I'm concerned about for me personally and for my colleagues, it's five months from now when the, the revisionist part of this comes back, when the, the eyes behind, because that's really all you see, right, are the eyes, um, the, the, the final goodbyes, the times you had to hold your hand. So when those memories of those people we had to say goodbye to, uh, when those memories of how tragic and how just unfortunate this whole thing is, um, that would be the thing I would say. Pray for us now and later. That's, that would be the best uh, I could, advice I could give, as well as staying home. <laughs> I do think that months after, you know, we're all out and about again, months afterwards, there's going to be this realization of everything that we've been through. I think mm. right now so many of us are just in survival mode. Right. We just right. want to stay well or we want to care for the people who are sick. But I think once we get back to some sense of, quote, normalcy, meaning, you know, out and about. Right. Yeah. That, that it's probably going to hit us just how big of an impact this thing has had on our emotional and spiritual side of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I think we're the interesting parts are what happens after we all. Yes. return back to a return to life again. I don't think there's a back. I don't think we go back. There's, no. There actually, there is never a back. It's always forward. No. So I, I think that how we progress and how we move forward beyond this is going to forever impact us and change us and likely and hopefully for the best, you know, for the better, that we are more cognizant of our interconnectedness, that we are more 
respectful of our faiths and of who we are as human beings, um, more honest in our vulnerabilities uh, and, and recognizing the need to see other people, to be with other people and to um, really to be brave, even though during these times, bravery just seems like something a certain group of people do, but it is required of all of us. Like the staying home is actually a brave thing. You know, you have to be brave and to be courageous as well. You know, and, and I think the last thing I would say is really to be daring in how you live, live greatly, live whole, you know, and live big. Be big in it, because I think if anything I've learned during this time, uh, it's probably a lesson that I've learned over time in the ER, which is, you know, human beings have a, a specific need to be acknowledged. That's a very basic need. Do you see me? Do you hear me? Uh, and it is something that um, if my, if there were a few of my colleagues who didn't recognize it before, they recognize it now. That just the need to stand in the space of someone else going through some, something else. But how much that is needed of all of us that, you know, as New Yorkers, we shuffle by, but say hello, you know, give a nod. Uh, and then also, to, like I said, to live greatly, you know, to live at your full capacity. We none of us know when um, this is our last. And unfortunately, we look and we see that for 20 something thousand people, May doesn't exist, you know. And so live to your live to your fullest, live whole, love. A hundred percent, you know, take the risk. Well, you are brave and you are daring and you're wonderful, my dear. And mm -hmm. I am so grateful to call you pastor and friend and I'm here for you, as you know. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. God bless thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye -bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee with Kathy. This podcast is brought to you by Park Avenue United Methodist Church. Follow us on social media at PAUMCNYC. You can also support our ministries by donating at PAUMCNYC.org slash give. We hope you've enjoyed this coffee with Kathy. Until next time.